we're going to start with Acts chapter 4. Now, a lot of these, I'm going to go through these a little more with some, they're not as long and not as detailed. I'm going to try to be as, as brief as I can because I want to get through all of this today. But um, Okay, so Acts chapter 4. Sorry, that's the best picture I could find on this PowerPoint. I couldn't find some of these are like cartoons, these PowerPoints, but some of these pictures are going to make you laugh coming up. So, okay, so Peter and John are arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin now are try is trying to suppress the message of the gospel. Essentially what this is is the old law, the people of the old law don't like the new law. They can't stop it. The Sanhedrin can't stop it. The message is just too... I mean, it's Christ. It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's no way they're going to stop it. I mean, the old, the old is going is to... The, the new is going to overcome the old. Um, they're released. Instead of celebrating, which most people would do if they got out of prison, they pray. They, they, don't, celebrate, they don't celebrate, they pray. Um, I mean, there's a boldness that we see them teaching with. They speak with boldness. In verse 32, we see that the Christians trust the apostles so much that they give their possessions to them to be redistributed. which is more of a communion of property. This is where people that like to talk about socialism, they try to go point to this part of the Bible and say, hey, the Bible teaches about socialism. This is not socialism. And then we also see that the apostles will sit on their spiritual thrones, ruling over the 12 tribes. So the understanding is the 12 tribes of Israel, they have the 12 apostles. The teaching of the church is that at the end of, at the end of time, at the end of the world, the 12 apostles, oh, I just thought about it. Tell them, tell them I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, so the apostles would, would, would judge the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel at the end of the, end of the world. So are they in Flagstaff? Is, what, is that where they are? Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot colder up there than it is here. Okay. Sorry. Okay. All right. So Acts chapter five, I'm going to split this into three sections. So the first section is, um, 1 through 11, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11, we see the lying of the Holy Spirit, or lying to Peter, is lying, is lying to the Holy Spirit with the, uh, the couple of Ananias and Sapphira. Amazing signs that we see for St. Peter. 
the fault of the couple that lie to Peter. It's not only greed, but the main sin is to deceive the church and God. Because they weren't, they were brazen about the lie. It just wasn't a lie, it was a, it was a brazen lie. And really the, the theme that we get from those first 11, those 11 verses is let your yes be yes and your no be no. In the second part of Acts 5, 12 through 16, we see Peter's, the shadow of Peter is working miracles. This is where in John's gospel, Jesus says, Greater things than these you will do. So Jesus, so it's not just, it's not, we don't ever see, um, I mean, someone, the, remember the woman touches, touches Jesus' cloak and is healed. This is literally the shadow of Peter healing people. Someone, used to, someone I heard this one time, a priest, priest gave it to me, I put it up here. Peter's shadow is like Catholic Groundhog Day. Okay, Peter sees Peter sees his shadow. So some people laugh, some people think it's um, and then um, the kingdom of God has come now with these miracles. And we start to see the idea of sacramental grace starting to kind of make its way from the miracles. Miracles are signs of God's grace that are pointing to the sacramental grace that we'll see with the sacraments. So like when, again, when John, so in John's gospel, Jesus says, you'll do greater things, says greater things than these you will do. Not only is he talking about miracles, but he's also talking like the, the sacraments too. And the sacraments are greater than miracles because they give us the grace of Jesus Christ. Every time we go to reconciliation, we receive that grace. Every time we receive Holy Communion, we receive that grace. The sacrament of baptism and confirmation, that grace is still working inside of us. You know, that times when, you know, there's that little voice in your head saying, I don't know if that's a good decision. Okay? It's like, Sacrament of confirmation, it's the Holy Spirit, you know, that decision making that helps us. That's why I don't know if you guys saw Bishop Wall, who came out of the Diocese of Phoenix, he's the, been the Bishop of Gallup. What Bishop Olmsted did many years ago with the restored order, he's doing that. That's why they get, that's why we get that's why we give the sacrament of confirmation to third graders. When they go through that gauntlet of, you know, late early like junior high years and high school. You want them to have that grace to make good, better decisions. I mean, I didn't get it until I was 17 years old. I mean, I didn't make, I didn't make terrible decisions, but I made, dumb, I made some dumb decisions. Now, was the, was the sacrament of helped? Maybe. It's not an end-all. It's not magic, but that's the beauty of the sacrament. That's the, and that's something we don't see in the Old Testament either, is sacramental grace. All of that stuff was... I mean, the Jews, they didn't have it. They didn't have, they didn't have, they didn't have sacramental grace. And then Acts 5, 17 through 42 is the third part. We see that um, 
there's two orders given, one to the angel and one to the Sanhedrin. And it really, the point of this is that God must be obeyed before men. So the angel tells them one thing, St. Hendrick tells them something else, they listen to the angel. Just like the Old Testament, the angels are there to kind of bring God's good news to us, the message to us, to um, console us. And the apostles, they're, they're, they're they know they're, they're in danger with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin killed Christ. They have no problem of killing them, but they continue to bold, speakly bold the gospel. They just are bold about it. Here it is. Here's the message of Jesus Christ. They, didn't, they weren't concerned about their own lives. As 21st century Catholics in Phoenix, Arizona, Will we be martyred for the faith? Martyred, like blood, like red martyrdom? Probably not. But white martyrdom? If you have family that persecutes you or mocks you, white martyrdom is like social persecution. We endure that all the time. People that maybe make fun of you at work or, or you know, they say things, you know, family members that say things. People in your family that have left the faith, um, you know, that's something, that's something we, deal, we all deal with. So just, just keep in mind that the early apostles went through the same thing. Chapter 6 is the, the primary mission of the church is in chapter 6. The primary mission of the church is to preach the word of God. That's the primary mission of the church. In the early church and today, preaching the word of God. The works of mercy, which we would know as the works of mercy, should be considered secondary. So they're important, but the primary mission is preaching the word of God. And this is where we start to see, this is why the deacons get involved. So giving to the poor is good, but it's not the most important thing. It's preaching the word of God. So we also see Acts chapter 6, prayer and ministry of the word is a major part of the church, and this should be done first. So prayer, preaching, ministry of the word. Now, the deacons, the seven, well, we know that the seven deacons, the traditional first seven deacons, St. Stephen being one of them, they were ordained, and that's a picture I found, I think that's Fra, I think that's Fra Angelico, the Renaissance picture of Peter ordaining the seven deacons um, to, their, to their role as deacons, and that's the beauty of art, too. Um, okay, um, the laying on of hands, we see the whole, we see holy orders taking shape. So they are, so the God, the, the, the apostles were to preach the word of God, the kerygma, the gospel message, and the deacons were there to serve the widows served the poor, served the children. They were the ones that were to do the works of mercy. 
And then you have the laying of, so this is like the consecration, this picture, consecration or the, the uh, ordination of the, of the deacons by St. Peter. And they take on, the deacons take on what the apostles can't get to. So the apostles' main job is preaching the word. And in verse 3, they are not made leaders until the apostles appointed them. We see, a, I remember I talked about we see a hierarchy. We see a hierarchical structure already here in the early church. Now, the, the, our diaconates different than the early church diaconate. Um, but there's elements of the early church diaconate and our diaconate. Are there any men in here thinking about being, uh, pursuing the diaconate after you're finished with Kino? Okay, so one, okay. Oh, who's, huh? Oh, Le oh, Leonard too. Okay, all right, thank you. Like the, it's like delayed. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, so there's two of you. All right, so there's a on the final question, on the final uh, uh, assignment, there's a question specifically that you guys have to, you should answer. You don't have to answer, but you should answer it. Okay, especially if you're thinking about being deacons. Okay, um, chapter seven, we see that Stephen is arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. And we see one of the longest sermons in all of Acts in chapter 7. There's two points in this. So you can, then again, I encourage you to read Acts if you haven't read it yet or you read it over the next week. Um, this sermon's amazing. I mean, he just, he, and he's another one, very bold, doesn't care. Just here it is, lays it out. You don't like it? Too bad. All right, I mean, he's just like, you want to kill me? You know, if you, you know, kill me, kill me. So he just throws it out there, just boldness. The two points of his sermon is he talks about there's the, revitaliz the revitalization of the temple, which simply means that God will act outside of temple worship, which probably drove these guys crazy because their whole faith was all based around the temple and the sacrifice of the temple. And he's like, well, the temple's good, but, you know, there's times where Abraham was in Mesopotamia, you know, when he heard God speak to him. Moses saw a burning bush, uh, and it was holy ground. So Stephen's whole point is that God can operate outside of, Jerus outside of the Jerusalem temple, even in Gentile territories. Because remember, temple worship, and that's, it's, that's a whole, you can take a whole class 
in grad school. I didn't, but there's places where the whole class on the understanding of the temple and temple worship. John Bergsma, those guys are fantastic for all of that stuff. And then the other point is every true prophet is rejected by the people of Israel. Every true prophet is rejected by, so Joseph gets rejected by his brothers, Moses by the people. You think of the actual, like, the other prophets, um, specifically in the scriptures, they're rejected, they're killed, they're stoned, they're, okay, maybe even in your own families, you try to speak about the church, and they're all over you about it. They don't want to hear it. They reject you. Okay? So we have, this, we have distinct prophets, and then you've got individuals that were also prophetic. So like, you know, Adam, you know, Adam and Eve. Adam was prophetic, was a prophet in a sense, because he spoke the, the, the name of, he spoke the word of God by naming of the animals. We have those, those you know, the three Old Testament offices, priest, prophet, and king, that's given to us in our in our baptism. We're, we're priests. We offer, you know, we may, may not the ministerial priesthood, but we we're, we're priests, and then we offer sacrifices. We're prophets um, that we that we speak God's name. We learn our faith exactly what you guys are doing. And kings, we serve as a kingship. We serve people. Really, the whole role of a good king is to serve his people, not rule over his people, like we've seen. I think, King, I think King Henry VIII is the guy that comes to mind. Not a good king. Okay, so um, the other big points that we see in here is that Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. Now, his martyrdom, we believe that Saul was present, or Paul, St. Paul, but Saul at the time. Stoning in the ancient world was nasty. What they would do is they'd put the person that was accused of this crime in a pit. Like a, they'd dig a hole. Put them in this pit, and then the main accuser of the individual would take a large stone. Okay, so imagine like a, like, we are, so we're in Arizona, river rocks. You know those big, you know those giant, we have them at the parish. They're giant river rocks. They're huge. They're probably a little bit more jagged, but like a boulder. And they would take it and they would heave it at the person. And then everybody else would then throw rocks and stones on top of them. Brutal. I mean, a brutal way to be martyred. That's the ancient, that's what ancient, that's what it, I mean, yeah, it's just. So that's how St. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, that's how he dies. Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty gruesome. So, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the the idea that where you know it's oh yeah it's 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 a pretty gruesome thing. All right. Chapter eight, we start to see persecution of the church really kick in. So because persecution started happening in Jerusalem, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, 
go out to the ends of the earth, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we start to see that the persecution of the church in Jerusalem starts to push the church out. And they start to move out geographically and religiously. So like what I said here, where they start in Jerusalem, now they're starting to move. And this is where they start to make their way to Antioch. Yeah, so this is probably, this is right before, so chapter 9, we're going to get into the conversion of, Paul, of Saul. Saul starts writing his letters probably in the early 50s. This is probably somewhere around the mid-40s. If I had a, this, that's an educated guess. The, the one thing I, I didn't say to you guys too in the beginning of class, I'm not a biblical scholar. I have a master's degree in theology, I'm, I, you know, like a John Bergsman, Scott Hahn. Like, if you ask me specifically, like, what does this mean? I might be able to tell you, but I also am going to probably turn to the same commentaries you guys are looking at, okay? So it's like, I'm not, I have a love for the scriptures. I love teaching this class. Uh, but, like, scholarly stuff, you know, I don't have, like, like Bergsman and those guys. I could call, Ber I could call Bergsman up and ask him, what does this verse mean? And he'll tell me right off the top of his head. For me, I have to go look it up the same places you guys are looking it up sometimes, or other, or other commentaries. So, but yeah, that's probably roughly right around. Okay, you're talking now, you're talking, what, 13, 15 years after Jesus' uh, ascension. So things are starting to, things are kind of moving. So, and it's hard to put time frame two on it because there were so many different calendars at the time as well. That's why we get these different dates of why stuff was written and it's just, it's, there were multiple calendars. All those different groups I told you about that were in Judaism, they all had their own little, they also had different timelines and different calendars and uh, Father Chris was explaining it. Like October, our October, October actually is eight, but it's our 10th month. Uh, December is, I think, 10, but it's our 12th month. So it's like, you know, you got to keep that stuff, and we got to keep that in mind, too, um, that sometimes things don't equal up to our timeline because of the, the differences in the calendars. But, like, my guess would be probably mid-40s. Um, all right, so eight, so we get the persecution of the church. They're moving out. Then we get this Simon the Magician. where he kind of appears, where, oh, look at this, I can do the apostles, I can, do, I can work healings like the apostles. The difference is that Simon is, a, is more of like sleight of hand magic and not really performing real miracles. And then in the end, Simon asks for prayers and believes. Hollywood took this in a movie years ago and, and, and years ago, like back in the... I shouldn't say it like that, but back in like the 50s, so it wasn't that long ago, but they took a movie, I think it was The Robe, and Simon the Magician plays a big part in it, and I'm like, man, he didn't have that big of a part in the scriptures, so and they, made him, they made him into this big character in this 1955, yeah, like Bible movie, The Robe, yeah, it's, it's like a B-rated, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, it's like a A minus, B plus rated Hollywood movie from the 50s. You know, it's not the ten. It's not nowhere near the Ten Commandments. That's like an A. That's an A. That's an A role, um, an A plus movie. The robe is different. 
Um, so now we see that Deacon Philip goes out and begins preaching to Samaria. And when he's, when he's preaching in Samaria, he comes upon the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is actually reading the scriptures. And, Peter, and uh, Saint Philip, uh, Peter, uh, Deacon Philip asks him if he understands them. He goes, well, how can I understand them unless somebody explains them to me? So the Ethiopian eunuch knew, well, I shouldn't interpret this on my own. It's not self-interpretation. I shouldn't do this by myself. I need someone to teach me. So the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, is really a proto-Catholic. Because as us, we must help, be helped to understand the scriptures by someone who has already been trained to know them. As Catholics, we don't self-interpret the scriptures. It's not scripture alone. It's not sola scriptura. The church, we look to the guidance and the direction of the church to help us understand. And what I'm teaching you is not my personal opinion of, all the, of what I believe Acts of the Apostles. It's what's been taught to me, what's been taught to my teachers, what the church believes and what we understand of Acts of the Apostles. So the Ethiopian unit kind of is this proto, is like a proto-Catholic. And again, scriptures need to be explained by the church. And then when we see that the eunuch is baptized, so he's a Gentile, because he's, come, come, he's, he's the, um, we believe him to be a um, chariot driver. And, um, and he drives, that's why he's sitting in the chariot, and he's a driver for, for uh, you know, the, the royalty. And he's sitting there, and then he's, and, but, he's a, but, he's a, but he's a Gentile, so he's, he ends up being baptized. And then we see the Gentiles coming to the faith of Jesus Christ. So we, we've talked about that, that we see this in Acts. But here specifically, we see the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, coming. And really what we see here, for us, it shows the importance of Scripture in evangelization. Why Scripture is so important for us when we evangelize. I mean, it, it was the scriptures that led me down the road to go get my master's degree in theology. I think I saw it in here. Some of you, somebody said there was St. Thomas the Apostle parishioner, Gail, Gail Summers uh, and Gary Summers. I took her Bible studies years ago, probably around two, probably almost, almost 20 years ago for the first time. My dad and I did. And, uh, and that was kind of the beginning I was, I was out of college for like four or five years at that time. So that was kind of the beginning of my, my understanding of the scriptures better. And then eventually, eight years later, I go to a Franciscan. Okay. Chapter 9. All right, this is a big chapter because this is where, this is where we lo everybody loves St. Paul. Okay. All right, so pivotal chapter in 9. This is where we, where, where we start to see... Kind of Peter and Paul starting to exist together in Acts. Once a ruthless assailant against the church, Paul becomes one of the most energetic apostles of Jesus Christ after our, after our Lord appeared to him. 
The conversion of Paul is in three places. Acts chapter 9, which is literally titled The Conversion of Saul. And then it's retold in Acts 22. Acts 22, verses 3 through 16. And then Acts 26, 2 through 18. So his conversion story is told three different times. Those two later times, we'll talk about them next week. Because he has to, he has to tell his story. The 26... 2 through 18. And again, we'll, we'll get into those a little bit. We'll get into those next week and why he has to do it. Now, I, go, I take back about what I said to you about those dates because in my, in my, in my notes, I've got something different. This, so I said mid-45, so if you if wrote that down, erase that. I've had in my notes, and it's got to be probably from Bergsman Hahn. Uh, it happened around the conversion of Paul happened. At, I'm way off. Around 32 to 36 AD. So it's so it's years. So it's not as I had. I was 10 years out. So this all happens. It all happens right away. But everyone thinks now. You got to remember, Jesus wasn't born in zero AD either. There was no zero. So probably like three to five BC, like our calendar. So he probably and he, he was 33 years old. So you're talking maybe Jesus died. Everyone, you know, we always think Jesus died 33 AD. Well, that's that's the number that's always gets put on Catholic T-shirts and all these things. But really, probably somewhere maybe in the either 30 itself or maybe in the late 20s is when our Lord died. Like, tw like let's say 29, 30 AD, because he actually because there was no zero. So this is happening. So I was wrong. I'm sorry about that. Uh, the, uh, so this is happening very quickly. So that's why. So again, that's why Paul somewhere happens. His conversion is between 32 and 36 AD. Because um, again, people think, oh, 33 is when Jesus died. How did Paul convert in 32? Well, it's the calendar. You've got to keep that in mind. And again, this is stuff I learned. I learned in the last 10 to 12 years. I was amazed when I started learning all this because I'm like, oh, yeah, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. So, okay. Like many of the Old Testament prophets, Saul sees a vision of the Lord and receives a mission. This is something that Saul would struggle with his entire life. Because Jesus says to him, not why do you persecute the church? He says, why do you persecute me? And this is stating that Jesus and the church are one and the same. And this idea that Christ and the church are united would literally occupy Paul's minds for years. We see it in his letters, too. He says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. This is another Renaissance painting. Bishop uh, Barron uses it in his one of his in multiple series, and he talks about it. Actually, we're going to probably watch that Bishop one of the Bishop Barron videos in class four after you guys are done with your presentations. So I'll, I'll let Bishop Barron explain this image. There, it, he talks about it too. Was he riding a horse? Was he not riding a horse? Um, people go back and forth. They didn't ride horses back then, but he was also a Sanhedrin. He was kind of working for the, he was part of the Pharisees. He was working for the Romans, so there's a good chance he was riding a horse. Um, but in this painting, I forget who, I forget, I forget who wrote, what the painting, who uh, the author of this painting is. Or the, um, but yeah, so this is, but I'll let Bishop Barron, when we watch that video, explain this, because he does a great job explaining this, uh, this um, piece of art. Um, so Saul is then blinded. And he was blinded from really knowing that. So he was blinded by the vision of Christ. But also spiritually he was very, he was blinded. Because he didn't understand the light of Christ yet. Which is interesting. He loses his eyesight. Spiritually, he's also blind. Now, what when he's baptized, in the early church, baptism was known as illumination. So in the early church, baptism was illumination. The sacrament that gives life and allows one to see. Paul is baptized and his, eye, and his vision comes back. And for the first time, he's now really using his eyes for the first time, in a sense, because he's now, you know, baptized with the light of Christ. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, when we talk about Paul, we'll talk more. Yeah, we'll get into all of that when we talk about Paul. Because I, I do a whole, I'll do a whole, the third class, we focus all on Paul. Um, now, a lot of people in the ancient world had two names. They used multiple names. So, like here was Saul and Paul. They would use multiple names, maybe with their, like one name with their family, but also then one name, um, Using using name for business or economically, um, like if you you dealt with if you were like a like a merchant, maybe you had one name with your family, or like if you were Jewish, you'd have your Jewish name, and then also kind of a Gentile name, not a gen, uh, like a non-Jewish name that was that was where you would use it in other places. So at, at his baptism, he's not only given physical sight, but he's also his interior blindness allows him to see Jesus Christ. He's brought to Ananias, who shares the mission to preach with him. And really what we start to see is that Saul is now directed and guided through other Christians and other members of the community. Now, again, when we get in 
class three, we'll talk more about Paul, his background, his family, his education, all of that, which plays, which plays an important role in this. Now, what's interesting, what we see, remember, he, uh, Luke is telling a story. And he's got to tell a readable story, just like all the other gospel writers are doing. Their stories had to be readable. Now, even though we see Paul quickly beginning his, his mission work, okay, I mean, not, not far after his conversion, we see Paul beginning his missionary work, it is believed and understood that there was a three to four year period before Paul started. And what did Paul, and it, it is believed that Paul went to like, um, now what we call, what we would consider modern day Jordan and spent time in isolation by himself praying after he received the sacrament you know, of baptism uh, and um, after, he, after he received the sacraments and he went off by himself to prepare for missionary, like his, like we don't just all of a sudden decide, oh, I'm going to go on a mission. Or I'm going to go be a pilgrim in Africa. We prepare for it, okay? Not that we need to do that. Uh, I mean, some people are called to it, but not all of us. But like, we don't just say, "Oh, I'm going to just go. I'm going to just go start preaching." He, he, you know, he had to learn more about Christianity. And um, the Eastern Church gives us a lot of this understanding that our Lord probably, you know, spoke to uh, to Paul during this time. And that, that Paul was also, um, you know, there were other Christian members of the community that maybe, uh, probably St. Peter, that went and spoke with him and shared things with him as well. So you get this, this time frame where, you know, he really takes time to kind of learn more about the faith. And then Paul says, uh, sets out and heads to Jerusalem. And we see that the church continues to grow steadily. While Paul is doing this, Peter also continues his ministry. And at the end of chapter 9, we see the curing of the paralyzed man and the raising of Tabitha from the dead. Now next week, we'll talk about that Peter and Paul are doing similar things. Doing similar things and saying similar things. Because there's always this argument that Peter, uh, Paul's better than Peter. Peter's greater than, you know, uh, Paul's greater than Peter. And all oh, they're doing different things. They're saying different things. You know, their ministry is completely different. That's malarkey. Um, when you start to look at it and you start breaking up, you start seeing what Peter's doing, what Paul's doing, they're doing very similar things. All right. It's just, I think this is, this is the bacon. I think this is my bacon picture. Oh, it is. Okay. Okay. So I'll explain the bacon picture in a second. So chapter 10, we see the conversion of Cornelius, which is one of the high points in Acts, another high point. We see that the gospel is addressed to all, all of humanity, all of mankind, shows the power of the Holy Spirit, knows no limits, no boundaries. That the gospel message is for all.
Now, in Acts chapter 2, remember I mentioned there's the term proselyte at the gate? Okay? Well, Cornelius is a proselyte at the gate, which essentially means that he followed the Jewish law. He followed the Mosaic law, but he himself was not Jewish. Yeah. Proselytite. It's a proselytite. So it's P R O S E L Y T E. P R O S E L Y T E. The proselytite at the gate. And we see that we see them in, we see them in the Old Testament too. They followed the Mosaic law, but were not Jewish. So that's where you see them at. We see that in uh, my contacts are terrible. Uh, both Jews and proselytes is in that uh, that chapter, uh, verse ten, in chapter two. That's what a proselyte is. I get that question all the time. Like, what is that? So that's what that is. So Peter is moved by a vision to go to preach at a Gentile's house. And he's told in a vision that now he can eat whatever is present. The meat that's present. This is a sign that the covenant barriers in the old covenant are no longer there in the new covenant. So there were certain, in the old covenant, there were certain animals unclean animals that you were forbidden to eat. One of those is pork. That's why, okay, if you like bacon, like I do, it's on my Instagram. I mean, I like bacon so much that it's on my, it's on my Instagram bio. I have bacon, bourbon, beer, guns, and something else. I forget what it is. But um, so uh, at the end of class, I'll, I'll kind of give you my... Uh, answers to this personal info sheet too. Um, so yeah, so I love, I love bacon. My wife makes it for me all the time. Okay, we have the million dollar bacon from, uh, she makes this million dollar bacon from, was it First Watch? It's got like pepper on it and oh, it's like, oh, it's unbelievable. She, okay, so you can either grill it in the skillet or bake it, it's amazing. So, um, but we, if you like bacon, you can thank St. Peter because that's who gave us bacon, so. Um, okay, so Cornelius does not need to be circumcised before he's baptized. Now this is where we start. This is chapter 10. So this is starting to look towards the Council of Jerusalem, which we'll talk about next week. Peter makes this decision through his authority given to him by Jesus. So, there's, so Peter says there's no reason you need to follow, you need to be circumcised. Which, which came from the Abrahamic covenant, but was also part of the Mosaic covenant. There's no reason to be circumcised, and he, Peter would just baptize him. And this is where we get, this is where the debate begins. And then eventually 15. We all kind of know how it, we all kind of know how it ends. Okay.
I'm going to have enough time to answer, take some questions at the end, too. So we only have a couple more chapters to go. All right. Chapter 11. Peter goes to report his baptizing of the Gentiles and how the Holy Spirit came upon the people. Huh? No, I actually, it's, it's the best thing I could find for a springboard. So, um, but yeah, that's actually the water too. Is actually so. Some of the Mosaic following Jews were shocked that they didn't that Peter just baptized them and didn't circumcise them. So the, the, the so the Jew, the Mosaic following Jews that are now converting to Christianity believe that, wait a second, they should be following the Mosaic law, then they should be baptized. And again, this is, like I said, this is where this whole debate begins. So the, the Mosaic following Jews wanted to see circumcision, then baptism. Peter Peter's like, no, just baptism. And Peter explains that it was through the Holy Spirit that he obeys what, what he did, what his actions were. We continue to see the church spreading even more now after the martyrdom of Stephen. The church starts to gather in Antioch. And it is from Antioch that they start to, they start to really go to all these other cities. That becomes, that's why I have that picture of the springboard. Antioch becomes the springboard for them going everywhere else. And I might talk about it next week, but eventually in, in seven, at 70 AD, when the Romans destroy Jerusalem and they destroy the temple for the last time, by that time, a lot of the Christians, and I, again, I, I'll probably bring this up next week. It's in my, I know it's in my notes from next week. Uh, by the time the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and really, really destroyed temple worship for, for the last time, a lot of the Christians had already been out, were already out of Jerusalem. I mean, there were some there, but they had kind of gotten out of the city before all of that stuff. And they all, and they all went to Antioch. Chapter 12, we see that now Herod, the grandson to Herod the Great, he kills James. The brother of John and since the Jews liked that he killed James he also throws Peter in prison again Peter escaped with the help of an angel This is the only, I couldn't find Peter, all the pictures I found of Peter with the angel were silly, so I just put this picture of Peter. Um, I imagine you guys all know this, but, but anytime you see anyone with keys in his hands like this, it's usually St. Peter. So if, like if you see Renaissance art, anyone that's holding, there's a company, there's a company called Sock Religious. Uh, it's a Catholic sock company. I'll, I'll wear some of their socks for the class. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm an, I, I, sell, I sell their socks for them. I, I, I'm an affiliate, so if you go to my website and you go to the link, you'll, you'll be helping support Baby Perna. So, um, so, because working for the church, let me tell you, there's not a lot of money in working for the church. So, um, so I need to find money. I mean, I'm an affiliate for, for, the, for the rosary company that makes this big rosary. Okay? So I'm an affiliate for them, and I'm an affiliate for the Catholic Bomb Company. So if you, if you have a beard, and you're not wearing, if not, you're not using Catholic Bombs, you're missing out because they smell like, I've got one that smells like holy smokes. Smells like, <laughs> smells like incense. I got one at the house that smells like chrism. I mean, literally smells like chrism oil. Unreal. Oh, yeah. My wife, when she smells, is like, ooh, smell, you smell like a newborn baby, like a baptized baby. Yeah, because it's got that same smell. So, long story short, so, uh, so the socks, so sock religious, sock religious has these socks that have, they call them the keys of the kingdom. And they're black socks, they're black argyle socks, and they've got gold keys on them. But they've got those, they've got Our Lady of, they have Our Lady of Guadalupe, they've got St. Joseph, they've got John Paul II, they have Pope, Pope Francis, uh, what else they have? St. Therese, Mother Teresa, they just came out with these Lenten socks for, uh, for Lent that have the ash crosses on them. So, yeah, yes, they're, they're cool. Oh, yeah, I love them. Yeah, Father, Father Will, my old boss, gave me the St. Joseph socks for our, uh, for our wedding. They are the coolest things in the world, these Catholic socks. And they're coming out with, I think they're coming out with St. Patrick soon, which, will, which will, you, have not, you have non-Catholics buying those. So, Okay, all right, sorry. I just send, see, when I have time, when, I have to, when we have time like this, I start to go down rabbit holes. All right, let me get out of it. So lastly in chapter 11, or chapter 12, sorry, Paul and Barnabas now are together. And they uh, bring John Mark with them on one of their missions. John Mark is the Gospel of Mark. So Paul and Barnabas are now on Paul's missionary trip together. The first missionary, the first missionary trip that Paul does, he has Barnabas. And then they also bring John Mark with them. But only John Mark, or St. Mark is what we, what we know him, what, what we know him as, he would only travel with Paul for a short time because eventually he would be a translator for St. Peter. Uh, John Mark, Greek. Like, he's, he's yeah, he's probably like, yeah, multiple, multiple languages for Peter. So he probably, you know, Mark was... So when they go to Rome, you're talking, uh, so Peter probably knew some Greek. I don't know, I mean, again, we, I don't know, and that's what information I don't really know that much about, or how, what the languages they knew and they didn't know. We know he, Peter would have spoke Aramaic, being a Galilean, probably knew some Greek because he was a fisherman, but some of those other languages, like Latin, John Mark, might, uh, St. Mark might have known, but Peter didn't, so he acted as a translator. And that's why when, and then eventually he's attributed, uh, John Mark or St. Mark is attributed to writing the second gospel. Remember he writes, when in, they're in Rome when he writes it to them too. Um, yeah, and Rome, that's, there's a reason, and there's, there's, someone asked me one time, I think it was last year, why is, John, why is Mark's gospel so short? Well, it's because 
he's writing the Gentile Christians that already believe in Jesus. They're already Christian. There's no reason to explain anything to them or try to make them believe that it's Je that Jesus is the Messiah. They already believe. The Gentile Christians in Rome would be like us. They're already Christians. They're already they already believe. So, okay. Chapter thirteen. Uh, so here's um, here's actually the beginning of the apostolic journey. So Paul and Barnabas are now together. They're the, the journey. The apostolic journey begins. Now this is forty five A.D. This is around forty five A.D. And they return four four years later. They the, the first apostolic journey they hit the countries of Asia Minor. So they traveled to Cyprus. You guys, I'm just telling you these cities. If you want to know, you don't have to necessarily write these down. But they traveled to Cyprus, uh, um, Cilicia. Pamphylia, Laconia, and Pisidia. Uh, Pamphylia is mentioned in Acts chapter 2. It's, it's essentially southern, modern day southern Turkey. That's Asia, I mean, that's, that's Asia Minor. Antioch at this time is still flourishing. And again, it's kind of where everyone resided. Uh, Paul's usual practice is to begin preaching in the synagogue of the town. And why does he do this? Well, it's the same thing Jesus did. He first goes to the Jews to bring the gospel message, just like our Lord. So even though we know him as the apostle to the Gentiles, he still, because he still himself was a Jew, he still goes to the Jews, just like our Lord. Like, let me bring the message to them. And then when they, if they reject it, which they often did, when they reject it, then I'll go to the Gentiles. So Paul's preaching, or really apostolic, apostolic preaching, was set up in a certain way. So Paul's teaching was you have a general outline of salvation history. And he really was showing them how Jesus is the fulfillment of the, what we know as the Old Testament. Okay, so that's the first, that's the first, uh, so the general outline, so like your Bible timelines, that's what he would give, like a general understanding of that, starting with that, you know, starting with the, uh, with the, uh, with the uh, prophet, the uh, covenant with Adam, and then going, you know, Mo, Noah, and, uh, Moses, or Abraham, and Moses, and going through salvation history, and saying, look, Jesus was the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And then there are 
primarily seven main points of, of preaching, main themes of apostolic teaching that we see in apostolic teaching, these main themes. So the first one is that God takes the initiative to save Israel over the centuries. God's taking the initiative to save Israel over the centuries. On the first day of the disaster, when Adam and Eve fall from God's grace by eating the fruit, Genesis 3.15 is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. From that point, God's trying to bring us back. He's trying to save Israel. The second apostolic theme is the coming of the precursor. John the Baptist, who isn't in scripture a whole lot, but plays a very important role. John is a St. John the Baptist is essentially the connection between the Old Testament prophets and the coming of Jesus. He's essentially the last Old Testament prophet coming right at the same time of our Lord and preparing people for the baptism that our Lord would give us. Another apostolic theme is the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. The kerygma. Another, the fifth apostolic uh, theme is the importance of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be an important city in the ancient world, but because David makes it the capital, there's a whole there's a whole subcategory with the Davidic covenant. I don't know if you guys talked about it. Probably not. Where you guys talk about all that stuff where how David, um, like the, the whole understanding of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, Jesus, how, how David does what he does. And you guys talked about that? Oh, that's good. Okay. So all that's, I mean, there's so, Jerusalem plays a huge role. I mean, Think about how important it is they're still fighting over it today. Okay? You've got three major religions in there fighting over it. Uh, the, the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, that was, the, that was the fourth one. The fifth one is, uh, so the, ap- the other apostolic theme is the proofs of Scripture, using the Scripture. In the, in the New Testament, when in the Gospels, when Jesus references the Scriptures, or any, or Paul, or any of the other writers talk about the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The sixth theme is doctrine and apostolic tradition. Doctrine and apostolic tradition. We start to see the doctrines of the church starting to develop here in Acts. And in Paul's, and in Paul's, you know, he tells the Thessalonians, you know, the, cert, the certain traditions that I taught to you. 
um, the doctrine of the Eucharist and having respect for the Eucharist and receiving the Eucharist worthily, guess where we see it? We see it in Paul's teaching where he talks about, you know, if you're, if you're unworthy to receive the, 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 the Eucharist, don't receive it. So that's, that's the understanding of the, you know, the, the beginning stages of the doctrines of the, the Holy Eucharist. And then the seventh theme is, the es is, is eschatology, or the eschatological warning about the future, kind of end eschatology is the, the study of end times. You ever want to read about eschatology? Uh, Doctor um, Martin, I can't think of his first name. That Franciscan, Ralph. huh? Not Ralph Martin. No, it's not Ralph Martin. I can't, why can't I think of Doctor Martin's first name? He's on one of those EWTN shows with Scott Hahn. He, he sounds like this. I I I fell into a hole a bit. <laughs> no, he's like he, he's got this very. We used to we used to do impersonations. Uh, when we had when we'd have dinner together of Dr. Martin, uh, I can't think of his I can't think of his first name. He's got a whole book on eschatology, and on eschatology and on death. He's got a whole book on death. If you want to learn more about the church teaches the church's teaching on death, he said my book is so good that on, on death that after you read it you're going to want to die. <laughs> That's his kind of sense of humor. Yeah, hello. After you read it, you're going to want to go to Jesus. So, but eschatology, that's a whole other aspect. We'll talk a little bit more about that with Revelation in week five. So then we're seeing Paul's discourses are similar to that of Peter. And we see a continuity between Peter and Paul. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week. What we see at the end of 13 is that the Jews just continue to reject Christianity because it was open to the Gentiles. Jews rejected Christianity because it was open to the Gentiles. You know, the Christian message became universal for all people. And the Jews, they, 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 they didn't like that. They rejected it. But who can blame them? They didn't like the Gentiles because every time the Gentiles got in the mix, they got into trouble. So, like, you think of, like, the, you know, when Solomon marries all those, wives, all those women, well, they're all Gentile women. And they bring in all their false idols. And then the Jews start worshiping, you know, the Israelites start worshiping all those false idols. So there's a point the Jews were like, man, every time the Gentiles get involved, we get, we get punished. Well, it's not because of the Gentiles. You guys just can't control, you know, you can't control yourselves. So, someone, someone recently said to me, you know, how do you, how do you not get, how do you not get mad at the Israelites? They had the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant with them. I'm like, well, you got to have some pity on them. We have the Holy Eucharist in all of our churches, and we still mess up. We receive the Eucharist. You can receive Jesus, you know, seven, seven days a week and twice on Sunday. You know, I mean, you can receive, and we still struggle. We still struggle to believe. We still put false idols in front of our Lord. So, and then the last chapter uh, that we're going to talk about today, it's another goofy picture I found, a cartoon. Paul and, that's the only one I could find. Paul and Barnabas continue to preach. 
Many of the things Peter did and said, Paul was doing the same thing. And then the signs and wonders would give authority to their preaching. 